Let's ask God to help us with his word. Our gracious uh, Heavenly Father, thank you that uh, Matt's reminded us that your word does its work even when taught and shared by imperfect people. Uh, We thank you that your word is powerful, powerful to teach us about Jesus so that we can trust him, powerful to teach, rebuke, correct and train us so that we can live as your followers, ready for all the good work uh, you have called us to do. And we pray now in the weakness of my speaking and in the weakness of our hearing that we would know the good work of your word in our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, When in 2019 I'm actually going to invite you to spend several months of this year looking at a book whose major portions were written around 1500 to 1400 BC, that's about three and a half thousand years ago, looking at it not to learn ancient history but to hear God speak to you, I expect some justification is needed. Why spend time in a Christian church teaching and hearing the fifth book of our Old Testament, the book of Deuteronomy? are three reasons which I hope are compelling enough for you to not only pay attention on Sundays but to diligently read and study the book yourselves. Firstly, Deuteronomy is part of the Bible of Jesus and his apostles. It guided their thinking about God and his work and what it is to live as one of his people. Jesus, for example, and the references are in the outline, as the true Israelite quoted Deuteronomy in the wilderness, to silence the temptations of the devil. Paul turned to Deuteronomy to bring out the nearness of salvation to us through faith in Jesus, the author of Hebrews, to give comfort and assurance to those persevering in their own journey to the heavenly city, the land of promise. Secondly, as part of the Bible of Jesus and his apostles, It's included in the scriptures, the sacred writings that the Apostle Paul assures us come from God and will help us to know what it is to trust Jesus for salvation and will equip us to be complete, ready for every good work as his follower. As we read and hear Deuteronomy, we should expect to grow in our understanding of Jesus and to be taught, rebuked, corrected and trained for the life pleasing to God. For these scriptures, Paul tells us, (coughs) were written for us. So believers in Jesus should come expectantly to this portion of God's word. And thirdly, the content of Deuteronomy should make us keen to study it. For even though the Greek name Deuteronomy means a second law, this book is all about grace. It's about being saved by God's grace, having your hope in God's grace and how to live as God's people in response to God's grace, his initiative in saving us, how to live so that we enjoy and prosper in a relationship with God by grace. Grace is the Christian experience of God. It's the heartbeat of our relationship with God through Christ It is by grace, says Paul in Ephesians 2, that we are saved through faith in Jesus. So understanding grace better and how to live as those saved by grace can only enrich our lives as followers of Jesus. And so hopefully as we go through Deuteronomy, you'll experience for yourselves the fulfilment of the promise of God about the profit of studying his word 
and that will remove any doubt from your mind about the wisdom of looking at this book. And if you're sitting amongst us and not yet a believer in Jesus, well, understanding Deuteronomy will give you insight into the understanding of God that shaped Jesus and his society, and it will hopefully address many of the criticisms of the God of the Old Testament that are common in our society. For example, concern about the place of violence in the conquest of Canaan. And also it will address, going through Deuteronomy, misunderstandings of how Christians use the Old Testament. In fact, Deuteronomy is a book that could introduce you to the true God, who is both just and gracious. Now, <coughs> Moses starts the book by setting the scene for the delivery of the series of speeches that make up Deuteronomy. In verses 1 to 5, he's going to tell us the who, the where, the when and the what of the book. And then in verses 6 to 19, he places the story of Israel's journey to the border of the promised land firmly within the promises God has given to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Promises that are foundational, not just to the first five books of the Bible, not just to Israel's history, but to the coming of Christ and the salvation of the world through Christ. Deuteronomy is part of the big story of God redeeming the world. These are the words that Moses spoke to all Israel beyond the Jordan in the wilderness in the Arabah. These are the words spoken by Moses. The Moses God sent to Pharaoh to bring his people out of Egypt. The Moses who had guided them through the wilderness, who had interceded for them, who had brought down from the mountain the two tablets of stone written with the finger of God. But they are not just Moses' words. Verse 3, Moses speaks according to all that the Lord had given him in commandment to them. It's the Lord, the God who had rescued them from Egypt and entered into a covenant, that is, entered into a committed relationship with his people, Israel at Sinai, who is now speaking to them through Moses. And Moses, it says, is speaking to all Israel. And that's a phrase that doesn't just include every Israelite alive at the time. Israel, in this book of Deuteronomy, is the people. The people who continue over time, generation after generation. The Lord is addressing his people here in every generation in Deuteronomy. In fact, whether you're included in Israel will depend on your response to God's word given in Deuteronomy. And Moses is making these speeches in a very significant place and time. There's some geographical notes there. In the wilderness, in the Arabah opposite Suf, between Paran and Tophel, Laban, Hazaroth and Dizahab. Or beyond the Jordan, verse 5, in the land of Moab. Now the description of the location brings home the faithfulness of God and the failure of the people. Again, yet another useless map. It's actually to inspire you to look it up at the back of your Bible or on the internet. But you'll get the, the gist. So the people are not yet in the promised land. They're actually on the very border of it, top right-hand corner of the slide. That's the plains of Moab above the Dead Sea on the east side of the Jordan. But that's also over against the places listed in verse 1. Now they're hard to locate precisely, but they're thought to be locations actually on the west side, over here, down where that arrow is. The west side 
of the Gulf of Aqaba, uh, places that are actually on the more direct route into the Promised Land. See, there is a direct route. It goes from Mount Sinai straight up to that place called Kabul Samaria, and from that straight into the land of Israel. Now, God has actually got them at last to the border of the Promised Land, ready to fulfil his promise to them of giving them the land. But the fact that they're where they are, up in the northeast, not on the west side using the direct land route, is actually a reminder of the people's failure. The failure that you heard Moses speaking of in the second half of our chapter. And that sense of God's faithfulness and the people's failure is also caught in the time note, verse 2. It's 11 days' journey from Horeb by way of Mount Seir to Kadesh Barnea in the 40th year on the first day of the 11th month Moses spoke. Verse 2, it's only 11 days from Horeb, which in Deuteronomy is the name for Mount Sinai where God had met with his people after they come out of Egypt. It's 11 days' journey from Sinai to Kadesh Barnea from where they could have entered the land, walked right up into the middle of it. And it only took three months for the people to get from Egypt to Mount Horeb. And they're only in Mount Sinai, at Mount Sinai, for about a year. But now, verse 3, <coughs> it's 40 years since they've left Egypt. And so you're meant to think, 11 days, 40 years. What went wrong? What's going on? Now, Moses is about to tell us. But the 40 years was the time God said the people would wander in the wilderness because of their sin. But there's also some encouragement in that, isn't there? 40 years, God has kept his word. Encouragement here to believe that, well, for the Israelites, that God would continue to keep his word in giving them the land. And they'd already, in a sense, started to see God delivering on that promise because we're told they're here after defeating those two Amorite kings, Sion and Og, and you'll hear more about them next week. And so, on the border of the land, having arrived at the time of God's choosing, having started to experience the fulfilment of God's promise despite their sin, Moses pauses to address the people with these major speeches, chapters 1 to 4 and then 5 to 28, and then a couple of smaller speeches at the end of Deuteronomy. And this is described as Moses' undertaking to explain this law. Now, while, as you'll see, there's quite a lot of commandment and statute and what follows, law is probably not the best translation. It's Moses undertook to explain this Torah. Now, if you uh, have friends who are Jews, you'll know that Torah is the way they refer to the first five books. And Torah is best understood as instruction and exhortation. Moses is giving authoritative instruction, a prophetic word from the Lord, and it contains history and promises and reminiscence as well as commands. This Torah will give the content of their relationship with their gracious Saviour for the generations to come. And the instruction starts with Moses recollecting God ordering the departure of the people from Mount Sinai almost 39 years ago. The Lord our God said to us in Horeb, in Sinai, you have stayed here long enough. Turn and take your journey. 
And then verse 8, that promise, I have set the land before you, says God, go in and take possession of the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob, to give them and to their offspring after them. So back at Sinai, 39 years ago, they were starting that journey of fulfilment. The fulfilment of the promise of God to give their forefathers the land of Canaan. And so they leave Horeb, Sinai, at God's command, guided by his promise to the fulfilment of that promise, and they are travelling as a people who have already started to experience the fulfilment of the promise of God. Uh, repeated in a number of places in Genesis, we see God had promised Abraham and then Isaac and Jacob basically four things. An example of those promises is there in Genesis 17. He promised that he would make Abraham a great nation multiplying his descendants, verse 6, that he would enter into a relationship with Abraham's descendants to be their God and, uh, he their pe and, and they his people, verse 7, and that he would give them the land of Canaan, that land flowing with milk and honey, verse 8. And yes, there's a fourth very important part of that promise to Abraham and that is that in Abraham's descendants all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Now, the people are already experiencing the fulfilment of some of that promise. That's what verses 9 to 19 tell us. You know, as you were listening, verses 9 to 19 may have sounded a little like an interruption to the journey story. But actually there's more to it. Those verses actually emphasise the faithfulness of God and the structuring of the life of God's people for the journey. You see that the people, verse 10, have already become a great nation, as numerous as the stars of heaven. Well, that's language that recalls what God had said to Abraham. God, remember, told him, look out towards heaven and number the stars. Abraham believed him. God's already kept his promise and multiplied the people in Egypt. Oh, and we see that they are travelling as God's people. God has kept his promise of bringing them into relationship with himself. When he appoints judges, he tells them to judge righteously. And the standard of judgments, verse 18, all the commandments that they received as part of the covenant that God had entered into with his people at Mount Sinai. And the judges are to operate, verse 17, without fear, knowing the justice they are administering is God's, that is, God is king amongst them and he's the ultimate authority who will enforce righteous judgments according to his standards amongst his people. He is in relationship with them. And more, the organisation is not just judicial but military. You see that in verse 15. The men appointed are spoken of as commanders. So this is the structure of the army of Israel on the move with God in their midst, the structure we see in Numbers. So the people are setting out as the people of God, the people whom God has already blessed and entered into relationship with in faithfulness to the promise to their forefathers, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, people who are now directed by God to go and take possession of the land God has promised them. They've experienced God's faithfulness and they travel with God, which makes what Moses recounts next so disappointing and so shocking. They come to the border of the land and they 
fail to enter it. It's a tragic story. The Lord, verses 20 to 21, is very clear. Go up, take possession. Don't fear or be dismayed. They know what God wants them to do. So they send out spies, as you heard, and their summary of the land is, actually, it's no doubt. It's, it's what the Lord said it would be. It is a good land. But then they do exactly the opposite of what God, their God, had commanded them. Verse 26, they would not go up. They rebelled. They rejected God as their king. Worse, verse 27, in their faithless fear, they start to misrepresent God. Oh, because the Lord hated us. He has brought us out of the land of Egypt to give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us. So they misrepresent God's motive. He hates us and his intention. He intends to destroy us. How easy is it to do that when we think that what God has asked of us is too hard? You know, when... As followers of Jesus, he asks us to give up that unhelpful relationship or to forgive that person who has hurt us and repented or to keep our word will cost us or even just to pay our tax. <coughs> How easy is it to think, if I did what God said, it would ruin me. Oh, he wants to ruin me. He wants my unhappiness. I can't do it. God really doesn't care. If he really loved me, he wouldn't ask that of me. Are you that much different from the Israelites? Ever heard those words in your own heart? And they did think that what God was asking them was too hard. Verse 28, our brothers have made our hearts melt. The people are greater and taller. The cities are great and fortified. The people are stronger. Where extra weight and height gave significant advantage in the warfare of that day. They're better organised, they've got sophisticated cities with defences and even the Anakim, who you'll hear more of next week, giants of fabled strength are there. Now Moses pleaded with them not to give in to their fear. Do not be in dread or afraid of them. The Lord your God who goes before you will himself fight for you just as he did for you in Egypt before your eyes and in the wilderness where you have seen how the Lord your God carried you as a man carries his son all the way that you went until you came to this place. He says, remember, you've already experienced the Lord fighting for you in Egypt, destroying a much more formidable army. Oh, you've already experienced his fatherly care carrying you. How could you doubt, he says to them? How could you think that he does not love you? They've experienced his provision, protection, guidance in their journey. But verse 32, they would not believe. And that was the core problem. They would not trust God who had shown them his love and power. And actually, isn't that the core problem? Every time we disobey the Lord Jesus, our unbelief, that's the core problem. But actually, as followers of Jesus, our faithless fear is even less justified. When we disobey, we are not trusting the love of one who gave his son for us. We are doubting the power of the one who raised him from the dead. You know, brothers and sisters, we have to recognise that every knowing disobedience 
is actually a rejection of the truth of the gospel, that Christ died for our sins and God raised him from the dead. And repent urgently, for such rebellion was and is disastrous. The Lord heard your words and was angered, and he swore not one of these men of this evil generation shall see the good that I swore to give to your fathers except Caleb. He'll see it because he has followed, wholly followed the Lord. The Lord was angered by their rebellion and their refusal to trust him. Now anger, and speaking of anger, is unfashionable with suggestions of loss of control and impotent frustration. But God's anger is just and measured. Anger conveys the intensity of God's rejection of their behaviour and his determination to act to restore what is right. For anger is expressed in God carrying out his judgments and it won't subside until those judgments are executed. Because of their faithlessness, not one of them would enter the land except Caleb. Everyone else would fail to obtain the promise. Only the one, Caleb, who was wholehearted in following the Lord would possess the promise, for such total commitment to the Lord is what the Lord requires and deserves, then and now. That's true, isn't it? When Jesus calls his followers, he calls them to love him above all. He calls them to deny ourselves, to take our cross and follow him. That is, he calls us to follow him wholly, without reserve. Oh, Joshua would also enter the land, for he would lead the children of these rebels, those who had not reached an age of moral accountability, having no knowledge of good and evil, he would lead them into the land of promise. And he would lead, because even Moses had been caught up in the consequences of this rebellion. Moses' anger with the people overflowing in the episode at Meribah, where he struck the rock instead of speaking, where he failed to honour God. Well, on hearing the judgment of God, the people were overcome with regret. They realised that they'd done wrong. Oh, we've sinned against the Lord. We ourselves will go up and fight just as the Lord our God commanded us. And every one of you fastened on his weapons of war and thought it easy to go up into the hill country. They confessed their sin and seemingly recommitted themselves to the Lord's will. But there was no repentance. Doing what? God commands only when you want, when you're convinced yourself that it really would suit you and your interests. That is not repentance. Repentance is saying, I was wrong, and humbling yourself to say from that point on, I will do what God commands, and saying that to God. Only doing what God commands when you want, well, that's exactly the opposite of repentance because you're still in charge and you have reduced God's word to merely advisory status, to be followed or not according to what will work for you. And their pride is seen in thinking, verse 41, that conquest would be easy, that they had it in their own power to achieve God's purpose, that they by themselves, by their own efforts, could bring about what God had promised. You meet that too, still. People who think that becoming the righteous person God wants us to be, breaking from sin, is just a matter of turning over a new leaf, working harder. 
that you can live the life God requires easily, without costly commitment to Jesus as Lord, without new birth and the power of the Spirit to put to death sin in our lives, in our hearts. But such presumptuous rebellion is disastrous as God wanted it would be. Without God in their midst, without God with them, they could not bring about the fulfilment of the promise of God. You cannot realise the promise of God in your life in any other way than God's way. And so their action was just more rebellion, more insolence, bringing more death. And the attempt to live pleasing to God by your own works, where you decide what pleases God and rely on yourself, well, that's just more rebellion, more insolence, <coughs> bringing more death too. Well, here we are, 40 years later, on the border of the land of promise. Here, Moses tells them, reminds them of this miserable tale of faithless failure. And the people Moses was now speaking to knew the truth of all God said because they were the children of that rebellious generation. They were those who had trudged through the wilderness all those years, watching the previous generation die out, watching the enactment of the judgment of God. Now, why does Moses start this Torah, this explanation of God's authoritative instruction of his people this way? Why start with failure? And he does, and he makes it very personal. He doesn't even say, oh, that rotten generation of your parents, that's what they did, but no, no, you're different. He uses you throughout. Did you notice that? He uses you as if they, his audience, were involved in this. He says, you rebelled, you did not believe, you would not listen, you. It was the failure of the nation, the nation of which those he is speaking to on the plains of Moab and now the representatives. Now this use of you, this inclusion, will have a flip side. They'll also be spoken to as included by God in the covenant, addressed by God at Sinai. Now we might have expected Moses at this point to give him a real boost, you know, a motivational pep talk. Now you're the ones who've made it, congratulations. You've got what it takes. But actually Moses leaves them in no doubt of their unworthiness as a nation to inherit the fulfilment of the promise. That if it had just been left up to them, they would have no hope. And that's a theme Moses will return to at the end of this book, Deuteronomy 30 on. Seems so hard, doesn't it? But starting with a reminder of failure is actually good for them and it's good for us today. You see, believers in Jesus have received great promises in Jesus. Believing the gospel, we now enjoy the fulfilment of some of them. We, we experience forgiveness, the gift of the Spirit, incorporation into God's visible people, his church. But we know the fullness of what's promised still awaits us. The resurrection of our bodies, the heavenly Jerusalem, the new heaven and earth. And so in a sense, we are like these Israelites. We're on the border waiting to cross over into our inheritance and uncertain of when that will be. And Moses, starting with failure, reminds us of three things. Firstly, only God can bring about what he has promised and without him we can do nothing to obtain that great outcome. 
and God will bring about what he's promised his way and only his way. We can't realise God's good purposes for us by ourselves and in our way. And so all our hope is in trusting our God, listening to him and doing what he says. See, this chapter reminds us that there is no other way to inherit eternal life than responding to the word of his son Jesus, God's son Jesus, with the wholehearted faith he calls for. And secondly, starting with failure makes God's grace prominent. You see, this record of failure reminds the first hearers that they are only on the border, only coming to the fulfilment of the promise because of God's grace, his free, generous kindness to them not because of any wisdom or virtue or strength they may have. Think of where the journey began. It's as God who freely, graciously called their forefather Abraham. There was no compulsion or obligation on God to choose Abraham. It was God who graciously, freely made those great promises to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. It is God who then rescued graciously his people from Egypt. It was his initiative and power the whole way. Oh yes, it was God who then graciously entered into covenant relationship, committed himself to this sinful people at Sinai. And yes, it's God who had pardoned them and not destroyed them completely when they'd rebelled at Kadesh Barnea. Their being on the border was all of grace, God's grace mediated through his prophet Moses. And knowing that it's all of grace is actually good for the Israelites. For their confidence in possessing the land could only rest on God's grace, his continuing gracious commitment to them, not on their own strength or virtue, because let's face it, the land had not become easier to possess in the intervening years. This is Moses. Uh, He'd be a terrible man for giving a pep talk, wouldn't he? This is what he says to them. You could cross the Jordan today to go in and dispossess nations greater and mightier than you, cities great and fortified up to heaven, a people great and tall, the sons of Anakim, who you, whom you know and of whom you have heard it said, who can stand before the sons of Anak? And you think, oh, that's encouraging, Moses, right? You see, they're still going to face a people strong and mighty with well-defended cities and well-organised societies without God as they have demonstrated they could not win. And how could they know they could rely on God? Not because of their goodness or obedience. You read Numbers. Their history is full of their sin, of their imperfection. They could rely on God only because of his grace, experienced in his generous faithful love. Only faith in the gracious, faithful God will give them confidence to go up and take possession of what was promised. And isn't it good for us as believers to be encouraged to keep God's grace, his free kindness to us in Christ, prominent as we look to possess what has been promised to us? See, we need to remind ourselves that the gospel says we all start with failure. Isn't that right? We start by confessing that we're sinners, rebels, dead in our sin, that we're saved by grace, not our wisdom or virtue or strength. And none of our following of Jesus has been perfect since that day we first believed. Isn't that true? 
If you think it's not, come and talk to me and I'll take you through Matthew 5 to 7, right? And call you to repent, right? None of our following it. That's what we remind ourselves by confessing our sin every time we meet. Our hope to come to the fullness of what God has promises, those glorious promises, is only in God's grace. His patient, persevering, freely given love for his people, his rich mercy that has brought us to trust Jesus and is ours as we continue trusting Jesus. Our God is rich in mercy. He has saved us by grace. Isn't that true? Grace sent the Son to die for us. Grace called us to trust Jesus. Grace convicted us of the truth of the gospel. Oh, God's grace that's patiently persevered with us, forgiving us, changing us. And yes, grace that will raise us up at the last day. Remember what Newton wrote, Amazing Grace? Oh, that should have been Israel's anthem. It is ours. It's grace that's brought me safe thus far and grace will lead me home. If we're going to be confident of keeping on living for Jesus, of inheriting what is promised, our confidence must be in God's grace to us in Christ, not in ourselves. That will bring us to the border and bring us into the land. And thirdly, this reminder of failure makes the response we must make to God's grace if we're going to come to the resurrection and the new heaven and earth clear. See, the consequences of faith and faithlessness are very plain in our passage, aren't they? Only faith in the promise of God, faith in the God who makes the promise, will inherit. That's true for us. Only faith in God's promise to us in Christ, faith in the gracious, saving God, will inherit. Only faith that is real, the faith that repents and obeys. Not that mock faith we see in the Israelites that masquerades as faith, but really is only a faith in your own judgment, only doing what seems to make sense to you. That's not repentance and faith. And we need faith. We're all prone, aren't we, to fear the consequences of following Jesus, of doing what he says. We look into our future perhaps and see loss of friendship or loneliness in marriage or the risk of alienating our children by insisting on God's way in our homes. Oh, we look at ourselves and we fear being exhausted by obeying Jesus' command to love others or be faithful, of being hurt again where we forgive. We can fear public embarrassment and ridicule and opposition at work or we can fear failure of starting as followers of Jesus and not being able to complete. Well, God reminds us here that only persevering faith that lives that daily life of repentance and faith where we deny ourselves and say yes each day to trusting Jesus and doing what he says will inherit. But God gives us great encouragement to faith here, doesn't it? It shows us the folly of fearful faithlessness. And it shows us how right and reasonable it is to keep trusting the living God who keeps his word. You see, our faith, trusting God by trusting his son Jesus, is right. Because this is the faith in one who has loved us and rescued us by giving his son for us.
who's already forgiven us and included us in his people. He cares for us. And our faith is in the one who gives us his spirit, who has brought us into a relationship with himself, not a relationship of distance, but one where we cry, Abba, Father, in our hearts, and know he hears us, and one where we're changed, empowered to live his way by his spirit. Oh, our faith is in one who's demonstrated his power over death in the resurrection of Jesus. He has the power to do what he says. It's faith in one who has promised to be with us always, to never leave us or forsake us, that nothing will separate us from his love, who knows us and is amongst us. And yes, our faith is one, as Paul reminds us, is faith in one who is rich in mercy, great love, a gracious God. Now this morning, you may know in your own heart those fears, the fears of what faithful obedience might bring you to. As you think about that, resolve not to give in to fear. Don't be those who give in to fear and fail to inherit. They're on the border of the land. God will never fail of his promise. His grace will get you there. Each day remember and give thanks for grace. The grace that's kept you going to now and relying on his grace each day resolve to tread again the path God has said will bring you to what he has promised. And remember the goodness of that promise, the new heaven and the earth. No pain, no grief, no mourning, no death. Every tear, even those you fear now you might shed, every tear wiped from your eyes, a body like our Lord's glorious body, rest from struggle. Remember the goodness of the promise and tread that path that God has said will bring you to what he's promised, where you keep your eye on Jesus, where each day you deny yourself, take up your cross and follow him, living to do what he has said. For faithful obedience will bring you to the fulfilment of the promise. But fearful faithlessness will make you an eternal loser. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we thank you for this good and true word. We do pray we would know its work in our lives. And especially we pray that it would turn us to your grace, give us confidence in your grace, renew us in our conviction that you keep your word, you love us in your son, and it is worth everything to trust him and do what he says. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.